This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. If I was to die, I pray that you keep the community that loves me cleaving to you, O oh God. Because I'm sure that negative images of, of me would be posted. If I was to die, I'm sure that my past will once again resurface. Keep us Keep the community that, community that you've surrounded me with, God, cleaving to you so that they can look my son in the eye and say, that's not your dad. Keep the community that you've given me cleaving, cleaving to you, God, so that they can look my daughter in the eye and say, your dad was a good, good man. He loved you very much. So that my sons can be proud. Oh, God, if I die. Let's pray. We're going to pray in response. I'll, I'll say a part of the prayer, and you guys can respond together with me. This is our prayer. God of peace, we live in a world that is broken and in great need of restoration. We see what sin has done to us and the world, and we are undone. Let's read together. How long, O oh Lord? until you return and make things right. We lament the violence and division in our country. We lament the devastation caused to so many because of hate. How long, O oh Lord, until you bring your justice? Your word says to wait patiently for you, for the evildoers will be cut off. Your word says that in just a little while, the wicked will be no more, and we will delight in abundant peace. How long, O Lord, how long is just a little while? Until that day, Father, free us from all bitterness and desire for revenge. Shape us to be warriors of peace and agents of hope. Replace our anxious fears with faith and trust, patience and courage. For we know that the gospel of the kingdom will prevail. Jesus defeated evil on the cross, and he will rid all evil at his return. Come quickly, we pray. Amen. Good morning. You guys hear me? My name is Anthony. I'm one of the deacons here, and I'm just going to kind of jump right in. If you uh, need a Bible, raise your hand. There should be some ushers that will uh, pass one to you guys. You want me to switch? I've been meditating on Psalm 42 for the past month. And it is a wrecking psalm. It takes me and take me for the past uh, month or so to dark, dark places. And then this week happened, and uh, and I felt like I was in shambles. I felt like everything I prepared just went out the door. 
I didn't feel adequate. I reached out to Aaron this week. I felt inadequate to come up here and meditate on this psalm. And what I found myself doing just yesterday, Friday night, was I was trying to take what the Spirit of God had been showing me for this entire month and manufacture some kind of artificial connection to all that's going on. And I believe that Psalm 42, because of the nature of the psalm, because it is a lamenting psalm that has overarching parallels, but I was trying so hard to make it fit like a puzzle piece. And it wasn't fitting, and it felt fake. So not every part of this meditation is going to connect perfectly with the climate of the culture that we're in. But I do believe because it is a lamenting psalm, and because it takes us to dark places, which is where our nation's at now, it will connect in many ways. I'm the kind of person that needs to get an illustration or kind of a color to concepts in in order for me to learn things. And so what I wanted to do was kind of set the tone for us before we entered into Psalm 42. So this is what I want want you guys to do. I want you to, to use your imagination a bit. And I want you to imagine a painful time in your life. Doesn't have to be the most painful, but a painful time. And for some of you, that's now. You're thinking of right now, but get it in your head. What kind of people were in your lives? What kind of decisions were you making? What were you thinking? What were you feeling before you uh, went to bed at night and when you woke up in the morning? What was going on? Now imagine I had the power to pluck you out of your seat and put you right back in that moment right now. And the memories went away, and reality flooded back in. Those people that maybe you don't talk to anymore came back into your life. It became your here and now. You're in that moment. you got to go there. you got to picture it. This is how we're setting up Psalm 42, so we got to go there. You're in that moment. It's not memories anymore. It's reality. And then I hand you a piece of paper and a pen and say, I want you to write a song about your life right now. Write a song about how you feel right now. What would come out? What would the words on the page be? What would come out of your soul? Psalm 42 is the song that came out of this psalmist during this time in his life. This was his song, and I believe it connects in so many ways to what's going on for us as a church, for the nation. That's the tone. That's the tone we're in today. So now let's, let's enter in as a family. We have to be formed as a family. I don't want to enter in by myself. Come with me. So if you can, open up to Psalm 42, and please stand, and I'll read this. And again, let's focus on these words. Let's enter in. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living 
God, when shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands a steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is God's word. Please take a seat. I hope you entered in. We have to enter in together. Our community needs to enter into the scriptures together. We can't stand at a distance. I hope you felt the tension in this psalm. There's so much tension, and the psalmist never takes us out of it. Why? Because God didn't take him out of the tension as he penned these words. He was in suffering. He was in pain, and he lingered in that place. And my hope is that we linger in that place, in those dark places, because the church nowadays scrambles to leave them. We try to leave the suffering. We want to indulge on creature comforts, and we don't want to feel the pain. We don't want to go to the dark places, but Psalm 42 is not going to let us do that. It's not going to let us escape. It is, like I said, a wrecking psalm, and we cannot enter in without being shaped in one way or the other. Let me set up some framework, just a little bit of historical context so that we can relate to the author because it was written a long time ago. So scholars, nobody really knows for sure who wrote Psalm 42, but biblical scholars and theologians, some preachers uh, like Charles Spurgeon, they believe that King David actually penned these words. Um, I'm a guy that likes to read. Um, I love fiction, nonfiction, any kind of books. I love to write. And so the reason I think King David wrote Psalm 42 is because the voice that I hear in this psalm is the same voice I hear in other Davidic psalms. Um, But again, I want to be fair to the text. There's no way really to know. But more importantly than who wrote it, the author, is the context, the time period in which it was written. This is written a, a long time ago, before Christ came in the flesh. This is not a new covenant. This is former covenant, Old Testament right? So there's certain things that we can't quite understand because of uh, the way worship happened, the way that this psalmist 
accessed God was through a temple and through the book of the law and all the customs and regulations and requirements. That's how the psalmist connected with God. We have an advantage as a church because we're filled with God's Holy Spirit. My favorite narrative in all of Scripture is John chapter 4. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, Samaritan woman. And Jesus hit her with a one, two, and she's kind of flustered, and she's trying to uh, deflect some of his words. And she says, okay, I see that you're a prophet, so, t- so tell me this. When it comes to worship, us Samaritans, we say the mountain. This is where we need to go. But you do say it's Jerusalem, so who's right? And Jesus said, those who love my father are going to worship by spirit and truth. Forget the mountain. Forget the city. That means us as a church, if we truly love Christ, are filled with God's spirit, any ground we stand on is holy ground because we have become the temple of God. His spirit resides in us. The psalmist didn't have that advantage. He had to go to temple. There were certain requirements, certain places, certain times. Things had to be done a certain way in order for him to really connect. And it's clear in Psalm 42 that he's disconnected from this literal place of worship. And he's mourning. Why? Because he doesn't have access to God. That's why he's in turmoil. That's why he's in pain. We see it here. Verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night. Well, they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Let me give you a glimpse of King David. Like I said, I believe he, he's the one who wrote Psalm 42. There is a story where David is in the streets surrounded by an army of people, multitude of people. And it says that he was worshiping God and he stripped down to his underwear and started praising God. Think about that unadulterated, unfiltered worship to God, that he would be surrounded by a multitude of people and not care, stripping down and said, I'll become even more indignified than this. He was a man who loved God. But we see the contrast in verse 3. He's in a place where he's eating his own tears. His condition so bad that his enemies can look at him and not see any evidence of God in his life. And they could ask him, where is your God? That's the place he's in right now. That's his darkness. And he's mourning. But check this out. His next words in verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He's remembering a time when he was surrounded by God's people, shouting out glad shouts, songs of praise. And if his enemy had approached him in that moment and said, where is your God? He would have said, he's right here. We're singing to him now. But this is just a memory. He's just remembering. Right now he's in a cave, eating his tears, and the question lingers, where is your God? His thoughts, remembering past joys, and his heart anchoring him to anguish. It draws him to verse 5, which is kind of the chorus, I guess, of this psalm. He repeats it later. 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. He's trying to console himself. He's trying to comfort himself. Hope in God, soul. Hope in God. Because again, his mind is remembering his past joys. And it's saying, look, I'm going to be there again. But right now, my heart is in anguish. He's talking to his own soul. Soul, why are you feeling this way? Mind and heart, two different places, million miles apart. And he's trying to reconcile. He's trying to deal with this as he's in this dark place, eating his own tears. And the enemy asks, where is your God? I don't see him. That's the question that they ask him. And if you didn't know it already, we have enemies. We have a capital E, enemy. And he is going to ask us, where is your God? When good things happen, when bad things happen, he's going to look at our lives, look at somebody who doesn't even love God, who doesn't even believe in God or worship Christ. Say, I don't see a difference. Where is your God? And when the nation's falling apart, people's lives are being destroyed, are we so complacent that the enemy could look at us as a church and say, where is your God? The world is watching, and when the church responds, can the enemy look at the church's capital C or even Redemption Alhambra's response and say, I don't see God in that response. Where is your God? The enemy asked him, and the enemy asks us. Our nation, our nation is in, tr- in trouble. And where is the church? What hope do we offer? What response? That question's there. Where is your God? Back to David. Even in the midst of this turmoil, the stirring of all these different emotions, his mind going one way, his heart going the other, he pens. I think the most profound verses in this whole psalm. Out of this whole month, as I as I meditated, it was these two verses that I kept lingering on more than any other. Verses six and seven. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Whose waterfalls are roaring? Whose breakers and whose waves are crashing over him? God's. David is recognizing the sovereignty of God as his enemies mock him, as he eats his own tears. He knows that God is ordaining this moment in his life. Is God sovereign here in America? Yes. Is he absent? No. The psalmist is recognizing that there's not a single moment, not a fraction of a moment that escapes the floodgates of time without first asking God for permission in order to come into existence. Not a single thread of hair on any of our heads will fall out of place without God being completely in charge. And as hard as it can be to accept this truth, as hard as it can be to understand these things, 
Not a single bullet will pierce anyone's flesh without God on the throne in control of all that's taking place. So there's a question. Does this make God evil? By no means. By no means. But church, I want to I want to warn us if I can. We have to be careful binding Satan in the name of Jesus when it's the waves of Christ that crash over us, crushing us. Don't give Satan too much credit. God is on the throne. There's a book in the Old Testament. Some people think it was the first book written in all of Scripture, Job. And Job experienced pain that I can't even imagine. He lost his family, his kids. He lost all his belongings. Even his skin, his own flesh, filled with boils and scabs that he was picking at with a piece of pottery, basically. And his own wife walked up to him and said, why don't you just curse God and die? And then friends come over and they're, extremely unhelpful, offering him advice, opposite of, completely opposite of the nature of God and the heart of God. And they're trying to console him. And he's trying to hear this terrible advice, this terrible words from his friends, experiencing all he experienced. And he says this in the midst of all of that. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. What? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Have we forgotten how to suffer? Is it a foreign concept to us? The church in America runs from suffering. We're terrified of it. Or we want to retaliate against it. Are we not to learn how to suffer like Christ? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame? If you call him Lord and God and king of your life, guess what? You have a cross with your name on it. And so do I. So we have to pick up our cross. And we can't be feeling betrayed by God when affliction comes because, because affliction has come and it's coming again to you, to me, to the church, to our family, and to the nation. So why are we confused when Scripture tells us that we're going to share in the sufferings of Christ? And what hope can we offer if we're all, always trying to run away from the suffering? Black communities hurting and we want to run away from it. We want to close our eyes, but we want to speak. We don't understand it. We have to pick up our cross daily. It changes us. It wrecks us. Our whole lives turns everything upside down. There's a man, an old preacher named A.W. Tozer. He talks about the wrecking nature of bearing a cross, which is true for us as a people. Don't think individually. As a community, pick up our cross. He said this. You knew one thing about a man who was carrying a cross out of the city. You knew he wasn't coming back. It changes everything, church. And our nation needs hope. The black community needs hope. How can we give it if we run away from suffering? Christ offers it. 
Why does Christ have that ability to offer hope? Because he endured the cross. That's why. He had joy set before him, and then he endured the cross. Then he said, guess what? You have a cross too. Got to pick it up. Got to endure it. That's how we give hope. That's the only hope we have. The world can't see any other hope unless we're picking up our cross and entering into suffering, not running from it, not trying to offer these facts. Sometimes you see the church respond to things and you say, what? The gospel is completely devoid of what you just said. You want to get on Facebook and say this or say that. Where's the suffering? Where's the cross being picked up? I don't want to read through uh, the rest of the scripture. It's 8 through 11. But to sum it up, it ends with the pleading. David never escapes this suffering place. He never gets out of it. We're left in tension. It's a pleading from David to God for God. A pleading to him. A pleading for him. David wants God. He can't access him right now, but he wants him. And God doesn't quickly pull him out of that. Leaves him there. That's where we're at. That's where we're at right now. We got to connect. If we're going to enter into the scripture, we have to see the ramifications all around us. If you call yourselves part of the church, we have to pick up our cross and suffer. People are suffering, and what hope do we have but that? And we mourn. We mourn. We forgot how to mourn, we forgot how to lament. Because we escape that suffering, we, we scramble from it. We don't want any part of it. We want, want everything nice and cushy. We don't know how to mourn. So when people are hurting and they look to us, we have nothing to offer. What hope can we offer the black community? What hope? We don't want to suffer with them. Why? Things are too comfortable. Things are way too comfortable. But David mourns. He's in this place and he's crying out for God because he wants God. This idea of, of mourning. The Spirit kept drawing this question back to me over and over this past month as I meditated on this psalm. When was the last time I, Anthony, lifted up my voice and cried out to God? Literally cried out to God. Asking God for God. Conviction upon conviction, I couldn't remember. I couldn't remember. But we need to mourn now. We, we, we say we don't know how. We don't know how to lift our voices in mourning. Through the span of my life and people that I've met, I've met a lot of outgoing people and a lot of shy and timid people. Some of the most timid, introverted people I've ever met, ever. I've seen them stand up with hands raised up, smile on their face, shouting, because a basketball game was on or a football game. But they won't cry out for God on Facebook. And I've done that. I'll get on Facebook, share a post. That's easy. But literally in the quiet place, in the dark place, my own home, get on my knees and ask God for God, shouting at the top of my lungs until my voice is hoarse. When have I done that? When have we done that? And this brings us back full circle, back to verse 1. I skipped over it in the beginning on purpose. 
So we're going to end this psalm where the psalm begins. Let me read, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When me and my wife first got married, we, uh, we did, it was humble beginnings, real humble beginnings. I mean, we had hot dogs at our wedding, got married in my, our friend's backyard, and we didn't have a lot of money for a honeymoon or anything like that. So some friends of ours, friends that come to this church, Melissa and Junior Dozell, they might not even remember, um, blessed us with a timeshare to Sedona. So we said, yes, thank you, we'll take it, let's go. So me and my wife, I think it was, uh, we got married late May, so I think it was a few months after, probably around this time of year, um, we head up to Sedona and there's this hiking spot, super easy spot, real beautiful scenery, um, decided to stop, it's kind of a tradition for me to, to do this hike. And uh, me and my wife go, we're hiking, we decide to come back, we're done with the hike. And from where we're at on the trail, we could actually see the parking lot in the distance, maybe a little bit less than a mile away. And instead of wanting to just go back on the trail and, and kind of toss and turn through the trail, I thought, what a good idea to just go through the wilderness, cut through the trail, and uh, reach the parking lot. I mean, it's right there, and there's buildings and homes and all these things around. People are on the trail here. So I convinced my wife, I don't know, I don't know what you're thinking, babe. She said, no, let's go. So we jumped off the trail and, uh, and found this little r river bottom that dried up, and we were walking on it and walking and walking and walking and walking. And we started to realize that we were lost, started to panic a bit. So we climbed out of this river bottom thing, and all the trees were dense. They were just over my height, so I couldn't really see where we were at, what direction we were facing. And we decide, hey, let, maybe we could just kind of push through and, and you know, we got to be somewhere near something because there were buildings and all kinds of stuff. So we're walking, and I was so dehydrated that I didn't, I couldn't even sweat anymore. I had that ring of salt stain on my shirt because there was nothing left to sweat. And I felt faint. I felt like I was going to pass out, and we didn't have any more water, and, and my wife looked faint. Eventually, we decided to, to turn around, and, and we found the, the path that we were on and, and made it back. But I remember being so desperately thirsty, and I didn't have any access to water. I don't know if I'll ever feel that way again. I don't know if I'll ever experience what it is to be really thirsty, but God gave me that experience. I was completely dried out. My lips were parched, broken, tongue dry, and I couldn't get water, and I wanted water. I was desperate for it. David, in verse 1 and 2, is saying, like that, like that is how I want God. I'm desperate for God in light of all that's going on in my life. And we have to be desperate for God in that way. We can't shy away from the suffering. We have to understand that God will put his children in a suffering place and let us linger there. He won't quickly pull us out of it. Because he lets the suffering finish its work in us, individually and as a church. We can't run from it. People need us now, the church. People need the church because we have the only hope there is. Literally no other hope. No other hope. And we have it. But we pawn it off for comforts. We have to be like 
David when he was in his cave, eating his own tears, crying out to God, for God, remembering past joys, looking forward to future joys. That has to be us, church. That has to be us. We have to be willing to linger in the suffering with our eyes closed, loving, worshiping, pleading, and mourning as we cry out with our joy set before us and say, for I shall again praise him. I shall again praise him. Pray with me. Pray with me. Lord God, there are people who are hurting now. An entire people group, Lord, are oppressed by the system. We know that. We're not going to ignore it here, Lord. We give you praise. Thank you for the grace of opening our eyes to your truth. Thank you for your suffering, the shared sufferings of Christ, which make us like him. And give us opportunity to offer the one hope, which is Christ. Help us and forgive us for running from the suffering which shapes us to be like you. Help us and forgive us. Forgive me, God. I've said some silly, crazy things. We've all done it. We've, we've all jumped on social media and shared it. God, forgive us. What are we saying? Help us to remain silent. And when we speak, it's love. It's hope despite the suffering. Teach us not to, not, not to be afraid of this, not to run from this, not to close our eyes from this, but to embrace it like you did, who, who endured the cross because you had a joy set before you. And that gives us hope, real hope, the only hope. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus, for what you've done. We love you that we could stand here and praise you in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Anthony, for, for leaning into the spirit of God as you would prep that. God is so perfect in the things that he does and his all-knowingness, like, that he would have us from months before prepping to do a sermon that would fall on a time like now that will have us calling out and lamenting, like, God knows this is what they're going to need right now. And it's unique. It's, it's, it's really unique for us. I love this church. I love the body that God has called us to live in, to, 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 to be a part of. I love this thing because God is doing this, this incredible work, and here's the thing that's easy at times like now. It's easy at times like now to just people to go to what they're, they're like, go to what's common, because the tensions of living in a community with people that are not like you is not so easy because it means that you have to deal with some tough things and things inside of your heart gets challenged. You have to face some real issues that may be inside of your heart that you didn't think was there, but because you didn't have nothing to challenge it along the way, right? So we feel that it's so important as pastors to pastor our people, our flock through times like this, that God would set something up and allow us to pastor you through this because we love you and it's wrecking to us all. 
And we want our people to respond right. We don't want social media telling you how you should respond. We don't want Facebook saying, this is how your emotions should be, and this is what you should act like. We don't want nothing outside of the gospel shaping you and how you respond in times like this. Like Anthony has already said, the world is looking at us, right? And we're not doing that good of a job in how we respond. So we wanted to take the time to pass the youth through this. We even switched the service up some. We even may linger a little bit longer. But we felt that it's important because this is the community that God has called us to be. And if we are going to be a foretaste of the kingdom of God, we got to get it right right here. So we need to challenge each other right here. We need to love each other right here. So that's why we took the time to, 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 to shape and mold everything, just how we would do worship. How God, he was the one that was setting up what would be preached. But we love you and we want to take the time to pass to you through this so you're not checking out along the way. But instead checking in in the midst of the tension and intentionally living through it and allowing God to use it to expose the truth in the lives of others. That's why we're here to do stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> way different service, and I hope that you can understand why. Um, I, I just want you guys to know that in all of this, there's a lot of churches scrambling to figure out how they can talk about unity when they're mono-ethnic in their congregations. Meaning there's a lot of white churches trying to figure out how they can minister when they have very few black, Hispanic, anybody else in their community. And so they want to talk about the kingdom of God, but they don't have reflections of it to point to. And I will tell you that it is the greatest joy of my life to look out into this room and to see that there's been so many people that come to our church and ask, what's the predominant race? What's the most, you know, how many, who's the most? What's it? Because there is a true sense of diversity, not based around style or anything. There's a true sense of it. But I will tell you this. The reason why we are who we are as far as diverse-wise is because of the leadership that God's put in this church, and I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about Wes and Wayne. They're my teachers on this. God has put them in my life to lead me and teach me and to shape me as a, as a man. And I am extremely grateful that I get to submit my life to them and walk through this stuff with them. And the other people in this community from the black community, the Hispanic community, the different minority groups in our country, I just want you to know it's a huge cost for you to be around people who are different than you and to hear the different thoughts that are happening. I just want you to know that it is an honor to be in this community with you guys. So I, I just want to take a minute, if you'll let me, just to talk to preferred culture, the, the majority culture, white culture, and I just want to tell you two things. One is this. Um, I've had the joy of sitting at tables talking about diversity for a long time. And every time 
there's real honesty that starts taking place. One thing that gets really evident is there's a lot of people, white people, who want to have diverse relationships. And what they mean by that is they want to sit at a table with Hispanics and blacks and they want to sit there and talk a lot. And I've, in all honesty, it's, it's just true. I've had minorities look at me and just say, hey, white folks, they like to talk. They like to talk a lot. It's true. The reality is in this time, most of preferred culture is scrambling and wanting to be the teacher rather than just shutting up and listening. And I'm asking that it, that would not be in the, true in this church. That you would not use this time to stand up and try to teach everybody how they should feel and here's the facts and here's what everybody should think and here's what's happening and here's the, 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 the issue that's really there and you all should see it this way. And the reality is there's no fact that could ever come out that could bring healing, ever. The facts are going to do nothing but continue to drive wedges because the reality is they're facts according to us they're facts according to me they're not the truth of what's actually happening and the church should not be sitting around as and and rising up and saying here's how you should feel the reality is you need to listen learn to listen second would be this please don't pull your one black friend aside and try to convince him that you're not racist right Please don't pull them aside and go, you, you know I'm not racist, right? Why you try to explain and self-justify. Self-justification is not going to help this issue because the, it's bigger than whether you're racist or not. This, this problem is so much bigger than self-racist, like whether I'm, and so self-justification is not going to help anybody. What I'm asking for us to do is be repentant and stop seeking justification. Listen and be repentant rather than talking too much and always trying to prove yourself. That's the posture of the people of God. Listen and repent. This podcast was recorded right now, at Redemption Alhambra Village us. in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. It's only because of the body and blood of Christ that we can even be united in any way or other. So let's let him lead us in this time of communion. If you would stand.